On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our 2001 A Space Odyssey listener polls, learn about Disney flops, and preview The Black Cauldron. Hello and welcome back to another prequel episode of This Film is Late, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We have every one of our segments and quite a bit of stuff to get to. It's a long prequel, so we're going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons, but we do have our Academy Award winners, and they are Vic Dangerously, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Ensminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Grey Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Run Rabbit Run is out now, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much for continuing to support us at the $15 level. We appreciate it very much, Katie. Now, we have to hear what people had to say about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah, um, but people had some thoughts on this one. I I assumed they would. (laughs) Um, So on Patreon, we had three votes for the book and two for the movie. Um, And we're going to start things off with perhaps our most contentious... (laughs) Feedback. I don't know if contentious mm-hmm. is the right word. Um, from Steve from Arizona, um, who said, Okay, so I will most likely be the most vicious of defenders of this film, and I don't care how my opinions might hurt some feelings. Well, you should generally just to just to <laughs> jump in right away. Generally, I think it's a good idea to consider how what you say will affect the feelings of other people, you know. Um, okay continuing on um steve said i love arthur c clark i enjoy his writing and his impact on science fiction but without this movie and trancing film snobs like me his works would have been lost to time and he would be the cool find at a used bookstore rather than an iconic pioneer of science fiction yeah i said it Kubrick's vision of the story, regardless of how divergent it is from the source material, will always be the superior artistic representation of the story. Secondly, I've grown tired of the modern take of the film being pretentious and boring, especially considering... I just real quick want to jump in. That's not only a modern take. Uh, we read a bunch of reviews from critics who all said the exact same thing when that the film came true. out. That is true. I just yes, wanted to that clarify that. It's not. I would just say that I don't think that it's necessarily a modern take. Yes, but. and maybe something that has, you know, proliferated yes. a little yes. bit more um, with the internet and everything. It has definitely but. permeated the conscious, the the cultural consciousness about yes. the film for sure. But I'm just saying that that's that was also the take of a lot of critics at the time. Yes. So it's not necessarily a modern take. Was my only point there. Um, okay, uh, especially considering we live in a world where pop culture is overwhelmingly bland, prepackaged, and in some cases, intentionally provoking to get views and hot takes by idiots on YouTube. I mean, we can find the time to enjoy the sincere and nuanced awfulness of Neil Breen and call him incredible, but when someone creates a superior piece of art, it's suddenly overindulgent. I'm rather tired of that trope. Was the likes of Varda, oh, oh, names I don't know how to say. I don't either. Um, Wadja Yadorowski. Yadorowski. 
I think. Lynch and hundreds of other auteurs considered overindulgent. Yes. <laughs> I'll take, Sorry. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to jump in a little bit here. I, 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 it's a long comment, so I'm going to have to jump in here and there. Again, want to initially stress, thank you so much for your feedback, Steve. Always appreciate feedback, especially when it disagrees with it. It's super fun. I, I, I enjoy, you know, kind of bouncing off things. But uh, kind of going on, the, uh, we find time to enjoy the sincere and nuanced awfulness of Neil Breen and call him incredible, but then someone creates a superior piece of art is suddenly overindulgent. Uh, I would say that Neil Breen is also overindulgent. I would agree. And pretentious. He's yes. just terrible. Yes, he's just bad at <laughs> he's it. He's just bad at it, which makes it funny. Yeah. Is what makes it I mean, I, I think, yes, I think the bad kind of just ends up eclipsing yeah. the overindulgence and the pretentiousness. Yeah. So we notice the bad more. Yeah. When we call that incredible, we're calling it incredible because it's incredibly entertaining, not because it's an incredible film. In fact, it's not. It's a terrible <laughs> film, which is what makes it entertaining. <laughs> uh so I kind of would break this down by saying Neil Breen is overindulgent and terrible and entertaining. And this film, 2001, is overindulgent and brilliant and boring. Like, at least to me, I, I, and we'll get to the boring thing in a second more, mm -hmm. but boring is obviously completely subjective. You, you, it, what is boring is boring, but Larry, you know, you, you, you can't really, it's just whatever bore if something is not interesting to a person they find it boring um so yeah that would be my distinction is that i would say they're both overindulgent it's also you know you can be overindulgent and boring or overindulgent and entertaining and ridiculous and the neil breen movies are also boring i've many times yes. <laughs> during our reviews we have talked about how boring neil breen movies are at times uh in particular some of them are more boring than other ones uh, and that they are punctuated by moments of hilarity. Uh, but they are, in fact, quite boring a lot of the times, uh, like this movie was to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> And also, just again, to, to tie on to that, was the likes of Varda, Waja, Jodorowsky, and Lynch, and hundreds of other auteurs considered overindulgent? Yes. So many people have called them overindulgent all the time. I, I, your mileage may vary depending on the person. Some their stuff is both brilliant and overindulgent. Some of the best stuff ever made is overindulgent. I don't really think that's necessarily a negative. I don't think so either. I think you can use it as a negative, but I don't think it's inherently negative to call something overindulgent uh, because I, I think it can be overindulgent and incredible. I love when certain directors get overindulgent uh, and I, even to some extent Kubrick, like there's some of the things that I think are, are overindulgent about this film. I think are really interesting and well done. Um, it's just also sometimes it's boring <laughs> to me, <laughs> to us. Um, okay, so Steve went on to say, I will gladly defend these types of films and I will go places that will make you hate me for the rest of your life. I mean, I don't think I would, but if you think so, it's up to you, man. You're the one saying that. Um, I'm happy not to hate you for liking this movie. <laughs> Uh, anyway, before I get too worked up, I do understand it is not everyone's cup of tea, but it bothers me when the crowd that dislikes this film just says it is boring. Okay, why? If you can't come up with cogent reasoning for your opinion, then clearly the art is not for you and one should greatly acknowledge it. I do that myself when someone asks me why I hate comic book movies. They're stupid, overproduced, and definitely not targeted for someone like me. I would just rather have my entertainment challenge my mind than deaden it with plenty of exceptions, of course. Okay. So getting back into the here now, um, I, 
I assume, I, I have to assume, and I think, I, I, I say I have to assume because I just, I can't fathom any other way that Steve is not talking about us here. <laughs> In the critique of, uh, it bothers me when the crowd that dislikes this film just say it is boring. One, we didn't say we disliked the film. In fact, I expressed quite a bit of like for the film. Also, in explain when we were saying it, we did just say it was boring several times. We said this is boring, that's boring. But we went into pretty explicit detail mm -hmm. of what we found boring about the film and specifically the places we found boring and what why we thought it was boring because it didn't add to what the moments that we found boring, in our opinion, didn't add to what the film was trying to do. Um, so it was boring and not necessary, in our opinion. You know, we just in a specific example, we talked about this, the sequence at the end with all the color changing yes. landscapes that goes on for an inordinate it, it, yes. amount of time. Yes. And that was something we found boring. Right. And it was and to me, it was the length of it that made it boring. Yes. If you cut that in half. I only would have been half as bored. <laughs> yeah, and, and and so we, you know, there because it, we felt like the, the 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 idea that that moment was getting across of him traveling through this wormhole and stuff was already expressed through the rest of the sequence, and even within the sequence, um, even if you know, even if you that moment you feel is particularly important for the film for whatever reason, I will say I I think it's at least somewhat important because it allows for the moment that I really loved right after that, where when we're coming back through all those color changes and we see the eye and every time it blinks, the color changes. Mm -hmm. But that still could have been done in a significantly shortened amount of time that right. I don't think would have hurt at all. Mm -hmm. the, the the sort of thematic uh, moment that this this sequence was trying to evoke. I don't think it would have been lost or detrimented in any way by cutting that brief segment, I don't know, 50% or something like that. Yeah. Um, to the point where it then became boring as I was watching it. Uh, so that's a, a little detail. And again, I think Steve is probably talking more generally about when people are like, oh, that movie's just boring and just dismiss it because of that, which is mm -hmm. obviously not what we did. So um, I think we're, we're kind of mixing. Steve is is definitely kind of like, airing like wider grievances as opposed to grievances against us i just i want to acknowledge that yeah unless no, I, i'm mistaken so. if you are acknowledged if you're airing those grievances at us i think you need to re-listen to the episode <laughs> but i don't think you are I, again i truly don't think you are airing those grievances with us right no and you know the thing about boring is you mentioned it earlier it's subjective yeah you know different people are going to find different things boring I really like period dramas, mm -hmm. but I know a lot of people find period dramas boring and I understand why, you know, it, everything is kind of like folded in and it's all like under the surface and symbolism and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the other problem with boring is that it's hard to quantify. Yeah. Right. It's really hard to accurately describe and verbalize the reason that you find something boring you know it's it's boring because i was bored yeah <laughs> and that's really it's really like the, the problem here i think yeah. is that it's hard for a lot of people to accurately verbalize why they find something boring yeah yeah i agree because that we did discuss this after or you know after the movie and after our episode talking about yeah boring it is it is one of those things that is hard to like yeah it can be hard to like very precisely define what it is about something that makes it boring. If it's, it's boring to a person, if they don't find it engaging in the same mm -hmm. way that Steve finds comic book movies, not engaging. And, and then I would say he might call them boring. Maybe 
not yeah, obviously maybe, yeah. in a different way than other people would consider something boring. But I, I know people who hate comic book movies um, who would say that they are boring, even though there's tons of action. They're boring for them because that's not interesting to them. Yes. Watching a bunch of like CG action fight scenes just does nothing for some people, which is I totally get. Like, I, I like it, but like, I get mm -hmm. why people wouldn't. Uh, and I think it's the same thing. It's like for some people watching a robot drift through space to set to no sound for 12 minutes in a scene that you could get across the same ideas, some of the same ideas. I think, again, I want to stress that I understand the ideas behind a lot of the, 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 the breathing room that Kubrick gives this movie. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to give you that sense of insignificance. It's supposed to stress and, and, and sort of, suffocate you with the overwhelming vastness of space and it's supposed to do all of these things and i think it succeeds at that but i think it also tips slightly into being boring in my opinion yes <laughs> well and i think too it's important to acknowledge that you know that can be what kubrick's goal was with mm -hmm. making those things and he can succeed at that goal and i think he did yeah but also Nobody has to like it. Yeah. You know, nobody has to find that interesting. Yeah. We all have different tastes yeah. and, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Where did I leave off here? Um, okay. So Steve went on to say, I've prattled on long enough. I'm sure all the listeners despise me now, but oh, well. Also, having been a film projectionist, the main reason why they stopped intermissions is because of a major change in technology. Before, projectors used a multi-reel system that was easy to stop a film midway through a viewing. Eventually, gigantic tables were utilized where you can build a print into one continuous feature. It was most likely created to weaken and eventually destroy the film projectionist unions, as the last generation of projectionists, like myself, barely knew how to fix the machines while we also had to do inventory, clean theaters, and so forth, while maybe getting a few bucks over minimum wage for our efforts. The newer projectors needed less attention, and ultimately, the digital projectors needed no attention whatsoever. The advent of multiplexes most likely aided in this as well, especially when the concept of movie theaters hosting 20 screens was no longer a dream but a reality in the early 90s. Renting a print was expensive, and thus stopping a movie meant you couldn't derive more revenue out of it. Anyway, enough about history. Great episode this week. I always love it when you guys take on science fiction because it is obvious that I go way too hard when it comes to the old stuff. I probably won't be this mad until you do Dune Part 2 because the second trailer has already got me fuming. Anyway, on to the Black Cauldron. We shall see. I watched Dune Part 2 trailer and I thought it was fine. Uh, I, I will say just a preview of my feelings. Uh, having finished Dune, the second half of the book did a lot less for me than the first half. I was mm -hmm. a lot less into it than the first half of the book, but um anyways that's not the point I, I i will say i did know at least a little bit about the whole projection thing i was never a projectionist but i had friends who were projectionists and stuff back in the day um and i i was aware that film used to be on reels and they would literally stop part right. of it was yeah. it, the intermission was you would be changing to another the next reel or whatever so it was a built-in intermission basically and that yeah you built them and then eventually built them out on tables so that was all one thing uh i still i i think it's an interesting history lesson i, I still don't think it I think our point of like, but you could still. <laughs> I think you. I, there's definitely a way to still 
do an yeah. intermission. Well, you can still do it. You can right. just pause a digital projector. Yeah, like but I, but I do think you know that the change in technology probably at least had something yes. to do with the the decline of. <laughs> I think it had to do with the decline of it, and I think people initially were probably like sick. Let's get rid. I'm sure there was a. I think there was probably a move towards getting away from intermissions. I, right. I like in the cultural consciousness it was probably like, hey, actually, no, we don't have to wait. We don't have to spend 20 minutes or have a 20 minute pause in the middle. We can just watch the whole movie all at once. Awesome. Like I'm sure that is, you know, and I'm sure that's still some people's experience. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I think I don't know. Everybody I talk to, anytime a movie even mentions an intermission, is like sick. Movies should have intermissions again. Yeah. And it's I think well, it's, yeah, and again, and it's I, not like we couldn't have intermissions now. We could. Yes. It's just that they. And don't. I do think that the the kind of recent um, yearning for the intermissions of yore is probably mostly brought on by by the advent of much longer films yeah, now yeah because uh, yeah. all the longest films back in the day had intermissions mm -hmm. and all the rest of them were short yes. <laughs> like <laughs> so yes you know you had your gone with the winds or whatever you had your movies that were three hours i don't know how long that was but like those movies that were three hours long four hours long but those all had intermissions uh, whereas, yeah, these days, the four-hour films don't. It's just like, oh, my God, I, I need... <laughs> yeah. If I'm going to watch a movie for three and a half hours, it needs to have an intermission. I'm sorry. <laughs> my bladder can't take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, our next comment on Patreon was from a handful of fish bones who said, My understanding of the movie after reading The Sentinel, the novelization, and listening to a lot of people talk about it is that it's a space opera about the dawn of man. The monolith sparks a change in early humans that brings about the intelligence for tool use. Humanity advances to the point where they stagnate, with their tools taking away the need for personal physical advancement. Changes sparked by one particular tool by, by proximity to the Jupiter monolith, and there's a struggle of man versus machine with man coming out on top. Then when Dave goes through the Stargate, he ascends above the need for tool use and petty squabbles. Or something along those lines. I wouldn't say it's a movie I enjoy per se, but I appreciate it and like to hear all the interpretations. I think you guys articulated the thing I struggled with the most about the film. I fundamentally don't find the story and the questions it poses very interesting. Part of that is probably my fascination with evolution. I just think the idea that humanity specifically was helped along by some alien outsider is profoundly less interesting than the spontaneous series of accidents that landed us here as we are as intelligent beings, amalgamations of flesh and bacteria and non-human DNA. I also struggle a bit with the lack of humanity in the film, which is probably intentional in the middle, which I like quite a lot, but there isn't really a contrast to that. The movie is like an overview of humanity without the humanness, like a summary out of an old history book. It's odd, maybe that's the point. But I do love Hal, and specifically the death of Hal. Because functionally, Dave is just unplugging a computer, but it feels like he's stepping on someone's throat. The character that feels the most human and emotional is the monotone machine. Anyway, glad to have had an excuse to watch this film. It gave me a lot more to think about than the book. Cool. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. Um, and I agree with the, the, the central or that middle point that, I, that was interesting that we didn't touch on at all, is that I do... Uh, I do think the I yeah I so the when they went into the fact that they're they they have a fascination with evolution and that the idea of humanity evolving on its own is more interesting to them than this like sort of 
like an alien alien thing intervention to, kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. I think it's fine in the movie. I think it poses some interesting questions, and I think and I think the the big thing that uh, again that we talked about in the main episode that I that I think was lacking here was tying that together at the end. Um, Mm-hmm. And, and and was kind of what you got into in your first point about uh but then when Dave goes through the R gate he ascends above the need for tool use and petty squabbles. I I agree that I think that's kind of the point, but I don't think the movie I don't, presented yeah, us yes, with I don't think the movie does a good job of showing that. Presenting us with the idea that that's what's going on. And I, I think some something along the lines of the original intended ending that we discussed of all of these nukes and satellites blowing up be the star kid blowing those up or something i don't know i again I, I think something along those lines um something some sort of button might have helped kind of make the thematic through line a little more concrete mm-hmm. whereas is it feels a little nebulous again in a way that i and apparently some other people didn't find super fascinating or interesting yeah um but anyways our next comment was from colin osborne who said well I voted for the movie on this one, but I feel very conflicted about it. I don't actually like this film. This is a recurring theme it is a through recurring a lot theme, of the yeah. feedback. I was gonna, I was gonna say when we when we did, I was like interested to see, and I was like, I have a feeling we might be surprised that it might be more people who are like, I don't really like this movie than we thought, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it and I respect it because it is a foundation and inspiration for a great many works of sci-fi literature. I do like. I even think The Sentinel is an excellent piece of short fiction by one of the best sci-fi authors to date. The reason I gave it to the movie is that the episode and the discussion centered around 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I don't think there is enough of The Sentinel in 2001 for me to consider 2001 an adaptation of that short story. Pretty much the only through line is the concept of an inscrutable alien statue, but the events surrounding the statue aren't similar, and the statues themselves are wildly different. I wonder if I have a misunderstanding of what retrofuturism is. I want to clarify before reading this. I don't think you do. I think I probably used that no, term yeah, slightly I, I, I out of... I think we used it slightly... Um, slightly so, so wrongly, Colin, but in a way that also kind of makes yeah, sense. Well, I, I was going to talk about <laughs> yeah. it in a second. So Colin went on to say, when I think of retrofuturism, I think of something like Fallout that is looking back at what in the past was sincere predictive futurism and spotlighting how act, actual technological progression diverged from that to make it look quaint or quirky in a fun or funny way. I don't get the feeling that is what Clark and Kubrick were doing with 2001. It feels more like a sincere attempt at extrapolating from the tech they had in the early 60s. Um, so yes, yeah. you're you're correct, Colin. Yeah. That is what retrofuturism is. I was using it to say like... I think I said it first, to be fair, and it may have, we just may have started using it because I yeah. have a vague misunderstanding. Like, yeah. And I was trying to refer refer to it as like two words, like oh, the retro yeah. style futurism presented in the movie, yeah. and just didn't think about it. Yeah, and I was doing it more so, and I was saying it again in maybe a less strict uh, actual like usage of the definition. I was kind of using the term more. I was using it as one word, but I was using it more. Um, in the idea of like the aesthetic of retrofuturism as opposed to the actual mm-hmm. conceptual idea of what retrofuturism is. Mm-hmm. I think 2001 kind of ends up being retrofuturism on accident. Okay. Or something maybe I think you could argue that it because it is. I would have to go back and re. I, I looked at this when I saw this comment and then now I forgot what it, 
Retrofusion, I think, is something like Fallout that is looking back at what in the past was sincere predictive futurism. So, so retrofuturism would be like if another property kind of mimicked the look of 2001 like as a way to comment on what people in the past thought the future was going to look like yeah is what retrofuturism is and it was set in the future yeah whereas this is set this is just yeah yes I think uh, so. Two thousand one is futurism that is now retro, yes, and, I and think, not retro futurism. And I think that's the thing. I think it's just in general, it has the look and feel of things that fall into retro futurism. Mm-hmm. Like it, it reminds me of something like Fallout or whatever. Um, in that it is, it is some, it is a future setting that looks like the nineteen sixties, whereas Fallout is a future setting that looks like. Um, or maybe it's not a future setting, but it's a, it's a setting that predicts future technology, but it looks like the 1950s or whatever. I can't remember at forties or whatever mm-hmm. um, in, in fallout. And so I think, uh, or I think it's like the fifties or maybe it even is the sixties um, in fallout. It's been a long time. Mid-century. Whatever, mid-century. And so I think, I think that's where I was kind of saying it is that, 2001 looks like something that is retrofuturism, but it isn't because that wasn't like the goal of it. Yes. I guess it's kind yeah. of like, yeah. Like, and like, honestly, I, you could probably still use it the way that we used it. And I think that's kind of what I was, yeah. yeah. I, I was using it like a more nebulous, like aesthetic description as opposed to right. actual. But like yes, but Colin, you are, you yes. are correct yeah. about what retrofuturism, like the, the actual definition of right. it. Yes. You are right. Okay, yes. Um, Okay, so the end of Colin's comment here. Uh, The 2001 musical theme is Richard Strauss's also Sprach Zathura. Zarathustra. Zarathustra. Uh, That's just German for thus spoke Zarathustra. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, From 1896, inspired by the writing of Friedrich Nietzsche, who I believe was a contemporary of Strauss and a fellow German. Well, I know he was a fellow German. I don't know <laughs> if he was a contemporary. I think he was. Um, however, to be fair, I also don't recall hearing it anywhere other than in this movie or in reference to this movie. So I don't think it was a particularly popular piece before Kubrick used it, but it wasn't expre- created expressly for the movie. So, yes, we talked about this. Uh, we realized this after I'd finished editing the episode. Mm-hmm. Um and then I didn't have time. I just wasn't able to go back and add a note saying, actually, we were because that was my thought. That was my memory at the time when we were recording yeah. the episode. And then I was like, oh, wait, maybe it is. Because the reason I, 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 I well, one, I Googled it and everything kept coming up just saying 2001. Yeah, Space I'm going to yeah, I'm going to blame Google. Well, for that was this part one. Of it. And then the second thing that then made me also go, oh, maybe it is just created for this, is that when I played this song several times in band in mm-hmm. school and every single time it was just titled 2001 a space odyssey like yeah. theme or opening or intro like yeah. it, it was never the, uh, also sprack zarathustra or whatever um when i performed it so i which i'm sure again it's just 
because when they bought the music from whatever thing, they knew that however whoever was selling this sheet music right. was like we're selling the two thousand one. And, and you never know <laughs> there there could be some kind of technicality with like the arrangement or something that yes, allows the exact them, arrangement that allows the them to title it yes. differently. Right. Who knows? Yes, but I I like said and then so that also made that was like well maybe that was another reason that made me go oh I guess maybe it is just for the movie. But then because I, I was like I had in my head that it was not that it was a previously existing piece. But then yeah couldn't find anything while frantically googling while recording the episode and then once we finished and then once i'd already edited it and everything we realized but thank you for the yes. the, the note on that um we were and we did not get as many comments <laughs> no, about that I as i thought we two, might <laughs> maybe yeah all right our last comment on patreon was from matilde who said i went with the short story for its final line the overall vibe and the potential it opens i can't deny the movie is masterfully done a pillar of cinema and maybe the most influential movie ever but i can't say i liked it beyond its technical merits it's beautiful sure the effects are very clever and ground groundbreaking but it has no heart or passion it's smart but empty emotionally I'd much rather ponder the future of man with movies like Contact or Interstellar. They might be schmaltzy, but they get the same kind of point across while making you care about men without the capital M. That's crucial in my opinion. I recognize that those movies wouldn't exist without 2001, so I'm grateful for the inspiration it brought to filmmakers, but I prefer what I imagine from the short story or what other directors came up with than the movie itself. Once again, find myself agreeing almost entirely with Mathilde. And I say almost, <laughs> I just mean entirely in this instance. Um, yeah, that, that, that uh, pretty much directly echoes my my feelings on the film and i think you know th those are a couple that i was thinking of Con contact interstellar um arrival mm -hmm. stuff like that that i think is smart heady sci-fi that is obviously all very much inspired by this movie in their own ways um but that is more grounded in store in questions and answers that i find more interesting which is about people mm-hmm uh, yeah. Which again, this movie is not not about that. I, like, and again, I, it's just it's just not. It doesn't it doesn't emotionally resonate with me in the way those movies do because those movies feel like they're about the people first and the sort of conceptual sci fi second, whereas this feels kind of flipped in a way that for me I just don't connect with as much. Yeah, so. I agree. All right, over on Facebook, we had two votes for the book and two for the movie. We had one comment from Warren, who said, Hi again. As you thought in your last episode, I am a relatively new listener. I discovered you thanks to your episode on The Handmaiden, a favorite oh. movie of mine. It's always interesting. I always love hearing, uh, by the way, if you if, just to be a fun thing, listeners going forward, especially all the people we get feedback from regularly, let us know in one of your comments in the future what what episode or like why you started listening to the show. Yeah, I would find that really interesting. Yeah. Like I, discovering us based on the Handmaiden episode is super fascinating to me because, yeah. you know, it's like a super niche movie that not a lot of people have seen or heard of. Um, I mean, obviously, like one Oscar was nominated, but whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like a big thing. Right. It's, not, it's, like a, not, it's, not, like, it's like, not like a big tentpole series or something. If somebody or... comes because they heard, they saw we were doing Lord of the Rings, I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense or whatever, Harry Potter or whatever. But uh, I think it's very interesting when it's something like that. So yeah, if you have a, a unique reason that you started listening to us, we would love to hear it. Um, okay, Warren went on to say, I liked it and started catching up and then fell in love with the show and you two as presenters. 
Thank you, Warren. That's very nice. Uh, I did comment on Watchmen, the first new episode I caught up with, uh, defending Snyder as being more leftist Mm. than people think. I do remember that comment, but I didn't know. Uh, My comment was cut too short for the proper nuance, though I'd recommend the video The People vs. Snyder for a decent breakdown. I also commented on the parent trap, but it was the Instagram comment that you couldn't read for some oh, reason. Oh, no. That was, so that's that mystery partially solved. Yeah. <laughs> At least we know who it was. Still don't know why Instagram wouldn't show it to me. Um, it was a shame as it was adding to the critique of the movie's anti-divorce stance. Oh. I love the response to my auteur comment. I couldn't have said it better the way you put expanding the umbrella and acknowledging the individuals for their mastery of their own departments, all auteurs in their own right. For this book and movie, I haven't seen either. I've never been a fan of Kubrick. I appreciate what he's done for filmmaking, but his films haven't gelled with me, and I always get a bit bored with them, even The Shining, which I can tell you doesn't go down too well with a (laughs) film studies class. Going off your descriptions, I think I'd probably enjoy the short story more than the film and have a similar reaction of the stuff without Hal coming across as a bit dull, but appreciating the craft itself. Hope this wasn't too long. Love the show and look forward to it every week. It was a very nice. Thank you so much, Warren. Um, and yeah, I can say I can tell you for sure. If you thought The Shining was boring, definitely don't watch this movie. Yes. If you find The Shining <laughs> boring, uh, I would not. I don't. You're this probably one. not gonna like. Yeah. <laughs> maybe watch like a compilation of the cool stuff yeah. or yeah. something. Yeah, you can just watch like a cinematography reel from this movie or something <laughs> like that, and kind of, or just like a vibe video, you know, like a, something that somebody edited together that's just like a chill, the, chill space vibes. Yeah, or lo-fi. Because uh, I do think that that would, yeah. Yeah, again, if you're if you're find uh, the shining dull, I would I cannot recommend this movie to you. So <laughs> but again, thank you for the comment. Over on Twitter, we had two votes for the book and seven for the movie. Kelly Napier said as a visual spectacle, this movie is unparalleled as a philosophical exercise. This movie is deeply thought provoking as a movie. This movie sucks. <laughs> In agreement with what you have to say in the episode, the sequences are too long and it's jarring in its narrative thread. The story is a snapshot. We're dropped into the middle of an event and just glimpse the happenings before we're taken away again. Almost like you're changing channels on the TV and stop just to watch a few minutes of a show before you start flipping again to something else. I liked how the short story accomplishes having a complete narrative without getting too bogged down in exposition. No one is telling me what's going on, but I'm never lost. For clarity, brevity, and knowing just the right moment to step away, I'm giving this one to the short story. I will say, I my only disagreement is that I, I actually kind of like the narrative structure of the film. I think it's mm-hmm. interesting, those little snapshots of... I, I do actually think it's interesting the way it's constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not where I, it loses me is like the, where we just kind of drop in and we get the, the Dawn of Man sequence. And then all of a sudden we're, Oh, I think Kelly's talking about the short story there. Uh, or aren't they? I thought they're, Oh, they're saying the story is a snapshot. We're dro- okay. Sorry. I misinterpreted that as a critique of the film be saying we're dropped into the middle of an event and just a glimpse of the happenings before we're taken away again. Mm-hmm. I was interpreting that as like the different sections of the film. And I, I guess thought, that could be about that. No, 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 no. I think you are definitely correct okay. when they say the story is a snapshot. I, I, I think you're absolutely. I just misinterpreted what was being said there, and they were. She was not critiquing the film for that. She was praising the book for it. So. Okay. 
Well, let us know, Kelly. I, I, I just misinterpreted <laughs> what was what was being said there. That's my bad. Because uh, my point being that I actually like the little sort of truncated like sections of the film where we just kind of drop in without uh-huh. like really explaining what's going on and kind of have to suss out how this yeah. connects and everything. I liked that about the film. It was just some of the other stuff that, yeah, anyways. Um, and then Kelly um, left maybe one of my favorite threads um, <laughs> that we've gotten on Twitter. Um, she said, now, please enjoy these quotes from my husband gathered while he watched the movie with me. Why are there monkeys? I thought this was a space movie. There can be monkeys in space. Famously, one of the first animals in space was a monkey. <laughs> yeah, famously, there have been monkeys in space. That is fair. Is anyone going to talk? No. No, girls, that's not the fire alarm going off. It's just mom's stupid movie. Directed at their children, I would assume. Uh, yes. Or cats. Um, g- <laughs> children, animals. Yeah. Uh, our cats certainly didn't like it. Yeah. Wait, we're friends with the Russians? I thought this took place during the Cold War. <laughs> I was going to like offer FEMA, like, well, actually, it takes place in an imagined future where we're not in the Cold War anymore, but yes. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this movie has no reason being as long as it is. Mixed yeah. feelings on that. I don't think the overall length of the movie is two twenty is like a fine, but the I, I I in general obviously I agree with that because I did we talked at length about how boring we found parts of this movie. They could cut a lot of it out, so it doesn't have no reason to be as long as it is. It's just not that long. I guess would be my. <laughs> it just feels longer. It feels than it long. Is. Yeah. yeah. Um, why even bother with the three guys in suspended animation? We know the robot is evil as soon as he kills the other guy. That right there could have saved time and made the movie shorter. Okay, I did. I just disagree outwardly with that <laughs> one. That, I, that's a very chilling scene that is very well executed. And I do love uh, cutting off every last uh, connection to humanity that uh, what's his name uh, that Dave has by killing the rest of the crew. I think I think you mm-hmm. need to kill the rest of the crew there. It also shows Hal's power that he can just. True. Try. Yeah. I think it does a lot of things, but. Again, these are, I know this is just, I want to stress that I'm aware these are just sort of off the dome, you know, uh, live tweets from a a movie (laughs) watching and not like a critical analysis. So I'm going to try to not go too in on certain notes. Um, I'm not high enough for this shit. That is true. And finally, I've watched Annihilation, The Last Unicorn, and now this with you for your podcast. Now, I don't bandy the word divorce around lightly. But you're really pushing the limits of our vows here. Okay, one, Annihilation is great. Two, Last Unicorn, whatever, it's fine. You could also just pick different movies to watch with. Are you forcing him to watch these specific movies, Kelly, or is he picking these movies? Because we've I, watched plenty of movies that I think, you know, have pretty broad appeal. Pretty, pretty broad appeal, yeah. Um, I did comment to make sure that Kelly, um, in the interests of preserving her marriage, did not make her husband watch Slapstick of Another oh, Kind. Oh, God. Yeah, she said she did not. Okay. So yeah. we're safe on that front. Yeah. Our other comment on Twitter was from Shelby's in her Cabibera era. Um, Shelby said, my vote goes to Hal, which I guess means the movie because he's not in the short story. The novel explains his motivations, if I'm remembering correctly. Him being the only crew member who knows the truth about the mission takes a toll on him. So he lashes out and tries to do everything himself. After he shut down, an Earth-based AI takes over control of the ship, and Hal is eventually brought back online in a controlled environment and given a therapist on Earth. Nice. I'm like a little. I'm I'm okay with that not being included in the movie. Actually, I, that, that sounds the, hokey. Uh, honestly, I think that might be in the sequel. Ooh. 
I don't okay. know. I, I've not seen 2010, but I mm-hmm. know they go into more detail about how and everything that went on in that movie, I think. so. Um, Shelby said, I would have preferred an epilogue where Hal goes to therapy in the movie, but that's just me. Either way, I'm trash for a mad AI, but only in fiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, the teaser trailer for Barbie was a bit of a letdown in retrospect. We were robbed of an, I'm sorry, Barbie. I'm afraid I can't do that. That could still happen in the movie. Is that a reference that I don't get? The the Barbie teaser trailer was um the the apes and the monolith parodied. Oh. I sent that to you because I was very excited. I was I was amped. About no, I it. saw the trailer. I just didn't. <laughs> I forgot that. I yeah. I was trying to place what what the connection to the two thousand one. Y- yeah. 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 Sweet. Uh, no, thank you very much, Shelby. Uh, and I actually think I disagree with you, Katie. I I am here for Hal goes to therapy. You know what? I think. I that'd think, be super interesting. I think. <laughs> with a different director i don't know if i would want kubrick to do that uh, maybe i don't know yeah i could see well the good good news he's dead so he's not <laughs> well thank god <laughs> he can't do it anymore and he also <laughs> did not direct the sequel so i don't know uh I don't, yeah i have no idea uh again i don't even know what happens the sequel it might not be in there but. on instagram we had one vote for the book and seven for the movie uh, we had a comment from Ian Armour who said, the film and Clark's novel are two different beasts. Mm. Those are worth contrasting. Yeah. I mean, like we said, we, we know they're different. We I, If you didn't maybe didn't hear the prequel or the beginning of the episode or don't, maybe you're not a listener at all and are just commenting. Well, this person doesn't follow us, so yeah. I would go out on a Potentially not a listener at all. But probably we did, not. If you are happen to be listening to us, we did address in the episode why we were not doing the novel. Um and it, right. we're instead doing the short story. but um, Because we talk about adaptations here. Yeah. So I'm more interested in looking at the source material yeah. and discussing how that turned into the film. The film as, opposed to, um, yeah. as opposed to something like the novel, which I would consider bonus material to the film yeah. and not yeah. a source of adaptation. Yeah. And like we said, this one is about as close to that line as it gets from everything I've read and seen that this is as close to being its own separate thing, but it is, it's, it was written in at the same time separately. It's not an adapt. The, the movie is not an adaptation of this book. The book is kind of an adaptation of the movie. It sounds like almost mm-hmm. as much as anything, which is again, it's just not really what, not really what we, what do, we here. do necessarily. So um, okay, and on Goodreads, we had zero votes for the book and one for the movie, um, and our faithful Goodreads commenter, yeah, Miko, Miko, said, I know I've read a short story collection where the Sentinel appears before, but I had no recollection of it, and I know I didn't realize then it was the inspiration for 2001, A Space Odyssey. I think that says something about how little these stories have in common. The short story is good, but I feel like I've read dozens upon dozens similar. I've never seen another space odyssey. Even when it's arduously slow, it somehow manages to retain my full attention. Your verdict is totally understandable, but I have to vote for the movie. I think reading the novel allows one to enjoy the movie more, and I wish I had time to reread it to try to figure out how much my interpretation of the movie relies on it, but I accidentally loaned 2010 Odyssey 2 in a hurry. Thanks to that goes to the confusing Finnish translations. The first book is translated as Space Adventure 2001, whereas the sequel is called 2010 Space Odyssey. That's interesting. Space Adventure 2001 sounds like a very different (laughs) film than 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I I I um I I think it is interesting. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit in the episode. Um, how Miko said, even when it's arduously slow, it somehow manages to retain my full attention. And it was something we discussed a little bit in the episode. Is that it is interesting how different films for different people are that way. Whereas this movie, again, a movie that seemingly made for me didn't didn't do that for me but um or at least to some extent uh whereas something like we said when we just did the the bonus episode portrait of a lady on fire that did uh which is you know um kind of similarly slow place slow paced dialogue light uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) films uh just in very different ways obviously uh and I, i think it is really interesting that you know those two different types of and i don't know i'm not saying that miko wouldn't find portrait of a lady on fire as enthralling as i did but uh they probably would but my point being that i could find a movie like that super enthralling but then watch 2001 and not have a similar experience even though they are similarly kind of paced for like again not that similar but they're (laughs) they're they're in the same ballpark of being like slow Mm -hmm. you know meticulous uh visual feasts I don't know. It's interesting. The whole sequel thing looks very confusing. I was also reading because, yeah, the, the books and the, the sequel movie and the sequel book, because Clark wrote several books, sequels. Mm-hmm. But the movie sequel is has a different name, I think. And it's all very confused. It's it's like the Fast and not Fast. And, it's like the Rambo, <laughs> like the yeah, Last yeah, Blood yeah. series. Where it's just <laughs> like they all have like weird colons and like addition. It's like, what's going on here? Yeah. All right, so our our winner was the movie with 19 votes to the book's eight. Yeah. Um, although the, the, that does the not book, reflect the feedback. No. Well, actually, well, well, sorry, it, it kind it of does. does. Yeah. Um, but a lot of our uh, movie vote feedback came with asterisks. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I think that, honestly, with, you know, I didn't read the short story, but I think my vote would probably have, I think my final verdict would have went the same way. I think I would have given it to the movie with all the same caveats mm-hmm. that everybody else did about, you know, not really liking it mm-hmm. as a movie that much, um, but really enjoying it as a spectacle and as what it means to the genre and to the medium and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah. All right. We got a learning thing segment this week. We're learning about Disney flops. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So we're talking about the Black Cauldron for this episode. And at this point, the Black Cauldron is kind of best known for being a spectacular failure. Yes. Um, So I thought it might be fun to run through a quick list of other Disney animated features that are or were considered flops, um, spectacular failures. Mm-hmm. Some of them might surprise you. Yeah, I, just the first yeah, one on this list was because they're they're no longer like, a lot of them are now considered classics. Yeah. but at the time, interesting. Okay, so we're going in a chronological order here. Um, some of these are movies that just didn't make a ton of money past their budget, and some of them were like outright. Like, they didn't even get up to yeah, the budget. Right. Um, so our first one is 1940s Pinocchio, which grossed, uh, box office gross was $1.4 million against a budget of $2.6 million. Wow. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people chalk this one up to, so this was Disney's second animated feature. So a lot of people chalk it up to just, it suffered in the shadow of its predecessor. Hmm. Couldn't live up to Snow White. Interesting. 
a tale as old as time. I'm just surprised that it, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how box offices like word of mouth and stuff spread back then or like mm-hmm. did it get bad reviews like well i guess yeah because box office is so it's, it's such a weird finicky thing because it, you know it doesn't even necessarily have to do with like reviews it's just it's a, you know it has to do with when it comes out what it's going against right what it does it is it well, something and people want to go also see suffered like, i think from being a wartime release yeah yeah stuff like that yeah, yeah. which also is true for uh the next movie on our list uh, 1940 rough year for Disney. Mm. Uh, 1940s Fantasia, which grossed um, 1.4 million box office against a budget of 2.2 million. Wow. Um, and part of the problem with Fantasia was that Disney tried to do too much. <laughs> Uh, um so basically what Disney tried to do was make Fantasia into like a traveling attraction. Oh, like a road show? Yeah. yeah. So Which was not uncommon would, they, for some yeah. films back then. So but. they would they like booked at a bunch of different theaters, but the problem was that the production required a specific sound system called Fantasound as well as special lighting cues. Mm. So they spent all of this money like traveling to different theaters and putting up their whole entire setup and then it just wasn't profitable. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. And I love Fantasia. Yeah. Um, problematic elements of it aside. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Fantasia. I think it is a visual treat. Um, but yeah, sounds like it was maybe a little bit too more involved than what it could make back. Mm-hmm. Um, up next on our list is 1942's Bambi, um, which... Another surprise. Uh, yes, which cost... Uh, Eight hundred and fifty-eight thousand to make, and the box office gross was two point nine million. So it wasn't like yeah a bomb bomb, but but, but that's not it wasn't a huge success no, either. That's, that's yeah. Um, and a lot of people attribute this one to Bambi being really really different from the Disney movies that came before it. Yeah. Um, it's like this animated nature film. There's a lot of really heavy themes. Um, there's some pretty dark moments in I mean, Bambi. Yeah, yes. It was the first Disney movie to not feature like fantasy. Mm-hmm. It was more like realism. Right. And I, a lot of people just didn't know what to make of it yeah. at the time. Yeah. Up next, we have 1951's Alice in Wonderland, uh, which grossed 2.4 million at the box office against a budget of 3 million. Hmm. Um, and. Alice in Wonderland, according to what I looked at, didn't go over super well in America because, uh, according to this article I was looking at, because a lot of people weren't as familiar with it. Yeah. Which I don't know. In 1951, maybe not. Maybe there hadn't been as many, like, adaptations of it as there are now. So maybe people weren't, like, weren't just as familiar with it. Right. Um, But I also saw something about it getting a lot of criticism in the UK for butchering the Lewis Carroll book, um, which is kind of funny to me because <laughs> uh, as far as adaptations of Alice in Wonderland go, this one is honestly not my favorite. It kind of meanders and it's I don't think it's very interesting. Sorry, Alice in Wonderland stands. <laughs> Got it. Mm. Uh, up next, we have 1959's Sleeping Beauty. Uh, which had a box office gross of 5.3 million against a budget of 6 million. 
that was the studio's most technically advanced and expensive film up to that point. And if you watch Sleeping Beauty, I don't know if you've ever seen it or how long it's been since you've I seen Sleeping Beauty. I mean, I saw it when I was a kid, but I haven't seen it yet. Sleeping Beauty is fucking gorgeous. Hmm. It is a beautifully animated film. It looks like a moving medieval tapestry. Yeah. Um, and the people in 1959 were not here for it. <laughs> um, so it bombed. And then in the aftermath of its release, the studio completely restructured its animation department and moved forward with a focus on saving money mm-hmm. in their animation, which you can tell if you then look yes. at the movies they were putting out in the 60s and right. 70s and 80s. Yeah. Like you can tell they were doing it on the cheap. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, up next we have 1963's *The Sword in the Stone*. Uh, had a box office gross of 4.7 million against a budget of 3 million, and this was just one of those productions that had a problem everywhere it turned. Um, its initial production got delayed due to the Second World War. There were casting significantly issues. delayed because yes. it came out in 1963, <laughs> yeah. um, which is there were also casting issues and um and then once it got out into the world, it has kind of a meandering story that never really comes into focus. Yeah, um, it's another one I haven't seen since I was a little. It's kid, one so. that I'm not, and I think it was Kelly that said she liked the Sword in the Stone. Sorry, Kelly, I I don't like the Sword in the Stone. It's it it kind of feels pointless and purposeless. Like, hmm. meandering storyline is a good way to put it. Um, so then we're jumping forward a little bit to 1990's The Rescuers Down Under, uh, which had a box office gross of $27.9 million against a budget of $37.9 million. Um, and so this one, it, it's opening weekend. It kind of barely registered. Like, not a lot of people went to see it in its opening weekend. And then uh, then Walt Disney Studios chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg pulled all of the TV advertising, which just made that worse. Yeah. So then really nobody went to see it. Yeah. Uh, in 1999, we have Fantasia 2000, uh, the sequel to aforementioned <laughs> flop Fantasia, uh, which had a box office gross of $90 million, against a budget of 85 million and part of the problem with Fantasia 2000 was kind of similar to the problem with the first Fantasia um and it was hurt by the way that they did the theatrical run so they released it first through an exclusive engagement in IMAX mm. and then mm. it moved to a wider release yeah. so i think it just didn't get enough steam yeah, it didn't starting up yeah and then in 2002, we had Treasure Planet, um, another one that's like kind of infamous for flopping. Yeah. Uh, it had a box office gross of $109.5 million against a budget of $140 million. And the biggest problem here was the bloated budget. Um, Treasure Planet was a blend of 2D and 3D animation at a time when that was still incredibly expensive to do. Yeah. And you know then people weren't interested in it it was also really really different from the stuff that were that disney was doing in the 90s and i you know i think regardless of how good treasure planet is or isn't when you're used to getting one thing and suddenly you get something radically different you're gonna turn a lot of people off yeah and that's just the way it is yep 
Uh, and our last movie on this list is a recent movie. It is 2022's Strange World, uh, which had a budget of between 135 and 180 million were the numbers I found, um, and a box office gross of 73.6 million, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite a difference. Yes. Um, and the poor uh, opening for that was blamed on um, poor audience reception, middling critical reviews, a vague and unremarkable pr- premise, and lackluster marketing. And, I, you know, I will say, uh, I don't think I had heard anything about that movie until it was, like, already out. Yes. I don't that, think they marketed that's it very the thing. well. I, I, I do think it ended up getting, like, middling reviews and that sort of thing. I think the premise is pretty cool from what I saw. Like, it's a family that, like, it's like a lost in space kind of deal. Like, mm-hmm. I, I guess it is kind of vague. I will say that. But I don't know if I would call it unremarkable. But uh, the the marketing is the thing I saw everybody talking about is that they just did not market that movie. Yeah. Like, nobody knew it was coming out. Like, it yeah. was like, this movie comes out tomorrow. <laughs> nobody has seen a trailer. Nobody's seen. Yeah, it was just <laughs> wild. Um, I think it also it didn't help that I, it got left out of quite a few international markets for different reasons. Oh, yeah. They had some queer characters. And yeah, stuff there were some queer were, characters. Yeah. There are also some like, you know, sociopolitical things going on right. in the world right now. Yes. That, like kept it out of some other international markets. Right. Um, and that did not help either. Yeah. All right. Well, let's now change directions. Talk a little bit about the material. That was adapted into another box office bomb, and that is The Chronicles of Pridein. Is that how it's you... Pridein. The Chronicles of Pridein by Lloyd Alexander. Legend has it, there was once a king so cruel and so evil that the gods feared him. Since no prison could hold him, he was trapped forever in the form of a great black cauldron. Old king. That black-hearted devil. Walt Disney Pictures presents The Black Cauldron. Escape into a world of darkness. Are you coming? Me? Go in there? Oh, no, no, no. It's a terrible place. A world of excitement. (sighs) A world of dreams. The Chronicles of Pridane is a pentology of children's high fantasy buildings Roman novels written by American author Lloyd Alexander. Um, As I just said, the series is a pentology, which means there are five books total. However, since the movie pulls only from the first two books, The Book of Three and The Black Cauldron, we are going to focus a little more on those two. Um, But first, let's talk about the inspiration behind the books. So during World War II, Lloyd Alexander received Army combat intelligence training in Wales. Um, He was stationed in Wales. And while he was there, he became familiar with Welsh Welsh culture, geography, and the language. Um, And he took a particular interest in the country's castles and in the folklore. Um, And he would later go on to say that he was always interested in mythology, which is the kind of thing that writers say. Um, So the stories draw on themes, ideas, and culture inspired by that Welsh folklore, particularly the stories collected in 
uh, a word that I'm going to butcher because I couldn't find a solid pronunciation. Everything I looked at was like a slightly different pronunciation. So I genuinely have no idea how this word is Welsh pronounced. Welsh is a made up language. Um, ma- Mabinogion. M-A-B-I-N-O-G-I-O-N. I don't know. I'm sorry if we have any Welsh listeners. <laughs> um, so according to Alexander, nearly all of the, po- the proper names in Prydain are from Welsh myth or history, uh, with the exceptions of Elanwy and Taran. Um, so originally, Alexander had planned to write only one or two Prydain novels, um, or three at the very most. Uh, and at one point, the plan was for a trilogy of books that would be titled uh, The Battle of the Trees, The Lion with the Steady Hand, and Little Gwion. Uh, those first two ones are chef's kiss titles. I love them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not what ended up happening. Uh, and the first book in the pentology, uh, The Book of Three, was published in 1964. Um, Ruth Hill Vigors of the Hornbook magazine said the book would, quote, wear well and that children would be eager for other stories in which Taryn may yet learn the meaning of heroism. Hmm. However, Marjorie Fisher, writing for Growing Point, criticized the novel for being too derivative of Tolkien, Garner, Macefield and T.H. White and said, quote, perhaps with only one or two of these models or influences, it would be better. Um, However, in 2012, The Book of Three was ranked number 18 among all-time best children's novels in a survey published by School Library Journal. Um, And I've already read The Book of Three. I haven't started um, the second book yet Uh as of the time we're recording this, uh, but I can definitely see the Tolkien influence on the stories. I think I have said that to you several times now if I've been reading it. At least once, but... yeah. Um, So the second book in the series uh, is The Black Cauldron. It was published in 1965, and it was a Newbery Honor book in 1966. So it was kind of a runner-up to getting the Newbery Medal. Um, I couldn't find any reviews of The Black Cauldron, unfortunately. Uh, The series concluded with The High King in 1968, which was awarded the Newbery Medal in 1969. Um, Alexander also wrote other books that take place in the land of Prydain, including a collection of short stories called The Foundling and Other Tales of Prydain, and two children's picture books, Call and His White Pig, and The Truth Harp. Hmm. Um, Audio versions of the series were produced in the early 2000s, with the author's notes being read by by Lloyd Alexander. Um, And aside from the movie that we'll be discussing, none of these books have ever been adapted for film or television. Uh, However, in March 2016, Variety confirmed that Disney had reacquired the film rights to the Chronicles of Prydain with the intention to adapt the book series into an epic live-action motion picture series more attuned to the mood of the books. Unfortunately, that project appears to be stuck in development hell. <laughs> yep, as is the way. Yeah. As tends to happen. All right, very interesting. Well, now we're going to learn a little bit about the movie that is based on those first two books, Disney's The Black Cauldron. And through the magic of 70mm photography and six-track Dolby sound, you will be transported to a fantasy event for the entire family. It's working! Soon the black cauldron will be mine. 
in the great tradition of Disney animated classics. Now comes the newest Disney spectacle of them all, The Black Cauldron. The Black Cauldron is a 1985 film directed by Ted Berman, uh, who directed The Fox and the Hound, and Richard Rich, who also directed The Fox and the Hound, as well as The Swan Princess, uh, a million of its sequels, a <laughs> series of Ten Commandment films, and a bunch of other uh, Christian animation, and a bunch of other random... His his thing is like every direct-to-DVD, like direct-to-VHS yeah. random series of animated movies that you've never heard of but looks vaguely familiar this guy has was a richard rich was a director of <laughs> some of them uh the film was written by david jonas uh who was primarily an artist uh who worked on the jungle book back to the future 2 indiana jones and the lost crusade big trouble in little china the movie wizards the lord of the rings animated movie uh he's usually a production illustrator or some other form of illustrator on this one i believe he was a character illustrator mm. And Vance Gary, uh, who did The Great Mouse Detective, The Jungle Book, Hercules, Fox and the Hound, Robin Hood. We have mentioned, we talked about Vance Gary when we did Robin Hood. Uh, and then there's a handful of other people that all have writing credits to the way Disney movies always do, especially yeah. older Disney movies. Weren't written like traditional films. It's way more, it's weird. It's more of like a. And this one was in production for quite a yes, while. Yes, and they too, brought right? people so, in and yeah. out and all kinds of things. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. On IMDb, those are the two people along with the author who are credited. Um, but on Wikipedia, the writing written by section has like, or story by section has like nine names in it. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, again, it's one of those older Disney movies where that tends to be the case. The film stars Grant Bardsley, Susan Sheridan, Freddie Jones, Nigel Hawthorne, Arthur Mallett, John Biner, Phil Fondacaro, and John Hurt. I only recognize one of those <laughs> names being John Hurt. The film has a 55% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 59 on Metacritic, and a 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb. And getting into the flop or not section, the film made... 21.3 million against a budget of 44 million. So yes, quite mm, not great. Flop. Not quite great. Disney optioned the film in 1971 and production pre-production began in 73 after they finally uh, fully obtained the rights. Uh, you'll notice that that is far before this film ultimately came out in 1985. Uh, so initially animation or animator, John Musker was the, the director on the film uh, he had been offered the position by Tom uh, Wilhite, who is a production head at Disney. Uh, and initially, Musker was kind of assigned to expand sequences in the first act. Um, and he he kind of did this because he as he was working on it, though, they ended up not liking it because they thought it was too comedic. And he, I just included this because I thought the quote was funny. He would explain later in an interview, quote, the older people I was working with didn't like any of my ideas. End quote. <laughs> a mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but official production on The Black Cauldron actually officially began in 1980, uh, like I said, after years of rotating writers and artists working on the film in some capacity, you know, in the pre-production stage of film, the pre-pre-production stage, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, so eventually the directors I mentioned, uh, uh, who was it, Richard, Richard Rich and Ted Berman were brought on, um, and they would go on to... Um, actually bring Milt Call out of retirement to create character designs for Taryn Ellenwee, uh, Flood, Flu, Fluter Flam, Fluter Flam, <laughs> there it is, uh, and other characters. And uh, Milt Call, I, I looked it up and now I can't remember. He was like a very famous, um, he worked on, hold on, but he's a famous animator who worked on uh, early Disney stuff. Uh, he was one of Disney's nine old men. Mm. He worked on Snow White, uh, 
the original Ferdinand the Bull, the short. Mm. <laughs> uh, Pinocchio, Bambi, Song of the South, mm. Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty. He worked on everything uh, as a directing animator. Jungle Book, uh, all that. Aristocats. He was he was one of the main animators. Uh, and so they they brought him back. He had already retired at this point to work on some of the character designs for this movie because they weren't quite happy with him. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, quite a few people left this production over the years, citing creative differences with different people, uh, including John Musker, who was the, the initial director brought on, uh, and Ron Clements. And the, both, the two of them would go on to develop The Great Mouse Detective together after leaving this film. So according to Musker, uh, some ca a casting note that I thought was super funny. Uh, according to Musker, who was the original director uh, before he left, uh, Gary Berghoff of MASH fame uh, originally auditioned for the role of Gurgi. And apparently during his audition, he tried numerous vocal iterations because uh, Ted Berman had no idea how he thought the character should sound. And supposedly, after three hours, the directors grew frustrated with him and he, but he refused to leave, and they had to throw him out of the studio because <laughs> he just kept doing different voices for this character. And like, you know what, this isn't working out. And he's like, no. And they're like, all right, I guess I gotta make this guy leave. This is a weird story. <laughs> so uh, before the, shortly before the film's initial planned release in 1984, there they did a test screening of the film at a private theater in Burbank, uh, and after that particularly the climactic cauldron born sequence. I don't know what that means. Uh, was apparently too intense for the audiences and, and disturbing for the most of the children in the audience. And apparently a lot of them ran out of the theater in terror before the <laughs> film was even finished, supposedly. Uh, and at the time, newly appointed Disney studio chairman, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, was like, we got to cut some of this stuff. Uh <laughs> Uh, because they were like, this is it's it's too long and it's too scary. It's going to scare children. It's going to alienate them. Supposedly, uh, uh, Hale, Joe Hale, one of the producers, refused to do this. And so the rumor or the story is that Katzenberg literally took the film into an editing bay himself and cut it down. And then apparently Hale went uh, uh, went to Eisner, went to Michael Eisner <laughs> and told him what Katzenberg was doing. And so Eisner had to go into the editing room and tell him to stop. <laughs> and so I, Katzenberg <laughs> did stop, um, but they ultimately would end up cutting, uh, delaying the film uh, from the initial planned release of 1984, Christmas 1984 to summer 1985 so that they could rework it. And ultimately 12 minutes were cut from the film. Uh, most of these cuts are pretty unnoticeable, but the cauldron born sequence in particular uh, is it does have some pretty noticeable cuts in it because you can actually hear the score, like the soundtrack, apparently jump, mm. like where some of the cuts are. Something to watch out for because they wanted to remove some it. of the scenes of the cauldron-born mauling henchmen or something like that. So, <laughs> um, and, and apparently, also a shot of one of them being dissolved by mist or something. I don't. I again, I have no idea. I've not seen this movie, so I don't know what that's or read the book, so I don't know what's in reference to. Uh, this is a fun little technical note that I found that I thought was super interesting. Uh, David W. Spencer uh, was a guy who worked in the in, in Disney's still camera department, and he apparently invented this process called APT, which stands for Animation Photo Transfer Process, which was first used on the Black Cauldron, uh, where basically, and it, it was an enhancement on the technology of how they would transfer uh, animation, but the way this worked is that rough animation would be processed onto celluloid mm -hmm. film, uh, and then 
the rough and or sorry that's the overall process so the way it was done is at first the rough animation will be photographed onto high contrast lithographic film and then this would make a negative that would be copied onto plastic cell sheets uh, that would transfer lines in the colors which would eventually eliminate the hand inking process however as the apt transfer line art would fade off off of the cells over time most of the film's animation was done using the zero graphic process which had been used by disney since the 50s i don't know what that means uh but Point being, uh, Spencer actually won a Technical Academy Award for coming up with this process, uh, but it would also fall out of use almost immediately when computers <laughs> came into being like less the than 10 damn years robots. Like, literally, computers made this all obsolete within like less than a decade. So <laughs> he pioneered this whole process, and then they're like, all right, we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, getting to some IMDb trivia facts that I, I'm saying these, I don't know if they're true. Just throwing that out there. Uh, supposedly this is the first Disney animated film that's not a musical and does not contain any songs that were performed by the characters or in the background, meaning like independent songs. Obviously mm -hmm. it has a score, but right. yeah, uh, I think that's true. I don't know. It was the number one IMDb trivia fact. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything before that <sighs> yeah. that doesn't have songs. Uh, this was also apparently the first Walt Disney movie to feature the classic Walt Disney Pictures logo, which is the white castle over the blue. Mm, the, yes, yes, that yes. One. The, the Walt Disney Pictures logo of our childhood. Yes, uh, this was the first one. And then that would ultimately be replaced by the Disney or the digital version of that, mm -hmm. which was in first showed up in uh, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, hmm. the first one. Uh, so Tim Burton worked on this movie as a conceptual artist briefly hmm. uh, and apparently wanted to incorporate minions of the Horned King that were similar to face huggers from Alien. Uh, and apparently you can see some of the samples of his work in the it, Disney released a DVD of this movie in 2000 with some extra features uh -huh. and stuff. And you can see some of his artwork. In well, I that. guess he wasn't worried about scaring and alienating the children. Tim Burton? <laughs> 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 Why? Yeah, of course he wasn't. It's Tim Burton. <laughs> uh, so this is also uh, supposedly the first full-length Disney animated movie that incorporated CGI. I think we talked about elements of, I think, uh, Little Mermaid yeah, having yeah. CGI and being the first, but apparently this was. Uh, CGI in this film was utilized for some of the special effects, which included bubbles, uh, a boat, a floating orb of light, the cauldron that we see at some point, and some apparently some flames seen near the end of the movie, uh, and a boat that Taryn and his friends used to escape the castle. So supposedly there's there's just a handful of elements that were created through CG or hmm. computer computer graphics, uh, whereas most of it is hand animated like traditional. A uh, little fun detail for uh, other space nerds out there: when the Horned King activates the power of the Black Cauldron. Uh, one of the sound effects they used during that like sequence is the sound of NASA's space shuttle solid rocket booster being fired. Hmm. So I thought that was cool and random. So getting into reviews, we got some reviews. Charles Solomon from the New York or Los Angeles Times wrote, quote, the highly dimensional soundtrack with its opulent Elmer Bernstein score and excellent vocal performances is a technological work of art but is the animation itself with some of the best work the studio has produced since Walt Disney's death in 1966 that dazzles the viewer, end quote. I uh, went on to say, quote, it's script and direction, or sorry, quote, if it's script and direction were equal to the animation, Cauldron would be a masterpiece to rank with Snow White and Pinocchio instead of the frustrating, beautiful, exciting, and ultimately unsatisfying film that it is, end quote. Hmm. 
was he talking about 2001 or what is he talking about? <laughs> just, just, it kind of echoes the, yeah, anyways. Um, Walter Goodman, uh, writing for the New York Times, praised the animation and John Hurt's performance, but said, quote, People old enough to recall their delight at earlier feature animations, no doubt burnished by memory, are not, of course, the audience at which the Black Cauldron, Cauldron is aimed. Nor, apparently, is it aimed at youngsters who have had a taste of more sophisticated animation of the Star Wars breed of movies, end quote. Okay, hang on. I don't know what that means. Star Wars is not animated. I know, I don't. Of the Star Wars breed of movies, I don't know what that means. I think he means sci-fi. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Uh, Charles Champlin, uh, writing for the LA Times, wrote uh, that the Black Cauldron, quote, lacks the simplicity and the clarity of great fairy tales or the child-sized wonder of Margaret Sharp stories that became The Rescuers, the last really successful Disney animated feature. One wonderful chase in the old riotously inventive slapstick tradition and two minor com comic figures suggest the pleasures that can result when the inventing animators have a fertile ground to start from but a lot of the way the film seems to be dutifully following a rather cumbersome and not overly attractive story end quote that's written weird i don't yeah maybe that's out of context i don't know this is the whole quote i could that i found for them from that uh anyways uh speaking of jeffrey katzenberg <laughs> uh he had thoughts on the film he was dismayed by the product uh, and apparently him and some of the other uh, animators believed that it, quote, lacked the humor, pathos, and the fantasy which had been so strong in Lloyd Alexander's work. The story had been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it was heartbreaking to see such wonderful material wasted, end quote. So they were not happy with what they put out, ultimately. Uh, Lloyd Alexander's thoughts on the film, slightly different. Uh, he actually kind of liked it. It was a kind of a complicated reaction. He said, quote, First, I have to say there is no resemblance between the movie and the book. Looking having, forward to it. <laughs> having said that, the movie in itself, purely as a movie, I found to be very enjoyable. I had fun watching it. What I would hope is that anyone who sees the movie would certainly enjoy it, but I'd also hope that they'd actually read the book. The book is quite different. It's a very powerful, very moving story, and I think people would find a lot more depth in the book. So basically, like, yeah, the movie's fine, but it's not my book. <laughs> this basically, yeah. this is what but he was very authors, nice about yeah, it. Very nice uh, about nicer it. than some authors. Yes. No, absolutely. <laughs> trying to, like, making sure those Disney checks keep showing up at his door. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film three and a half out of four stars. Wow. Praising the film as, quote, a rip-roaring tale of swords and sorcery, evil and revenge, magic and pluck and luck. And it takes us on a journey through a kingdom of some of the more memorable characters in any recent Disney film. He did go on to note how, quote, involving the story was and felt, quote, the key to the movie is in the richness of the characterizations. And the two best characters, I think, are the Horned King and a fuzzy little creature named Gurgi, end quote. All right. Is that where they got Grogu's name from? Gurgi. I hope so. They just took Gurgi and like put a little spin on it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Ebert, uh, big fan. Yeah, he gave it three he liked and a half it. out of four stars is a very solid review. So interesting. Uh, uh, before we wrap up, we can wonder, mind you, as always, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash this film is lit, get bonus content and all that good stuff. Uh, Katie, where can people watch The Black Cauldron? Well, you can check with your local library or a local video rental store if you still have one of those. Otherwise, you can stream this with a subscription to Disney Plus. And if you don't have Disney Plus, you can rent it for around three to four dollars from Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, or DirecTV. Uh yeah, obviously Disney Plus would be the main thing for, yeah. for probably most people, but 
I'm really looking forward to this. I, I said the same thing with Last Unicorn, was a little let down by that. I'm hoping I mm-hmm. won't be let down by this one. We'll see. I mean, we'll I probably we'll will, see. but maybe not. <laughs> we'll find out. It, I think it looks interesting. I have not watched the trailer yet. Uh, I will do that when I edit this episode. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, I it, you're really enjoying the books. So I'm, yeah, I I'm, am. I am. I'm really interested to see uh, how the film came out. Uh, it's, it's one of those Disney films, like I said, that I never saw. Uh, but it, I, it being scary is not a problem for me because I'm a big boy. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I, uh, like I said, I, I, I really, I can't wait to watch it and, and see what we, what, what we think about it. That'll be in one week's time. We're talking to Black about the Black Cauldron. Until that time, guys, gals, my binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Watching movies. And, and keep, keep being awesome. awesome.